We're adopted into God's family as children. You, you know this. We spoke about it at some length last week, just in one verse. I, I love it. I don't mind sharing with it with you again. It was Romans chapter 8, verse 15. And uh, there we read, you have not, you Christians, have not received a, a spirit of slavery. No, 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 no. Not one that leads to fear. No, on the contrary, you've received, the text said, you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's really, 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 really wonderful no longer to be adversaries of God, but as people who have accepted his only begotten son to be considered to be as adopted sons and daughters. But as grand and glorious as is that truth that we looked at last week in Romans 8, 15, wouldn't it be really, really, really good to be sure of it? Have you ever had, though you be a Christian, have you ever had doubts about the truth of a verse like Romans 8, 15? Uh, you wouldn't be unusual if you said yes. To be honest, if you said, uh, I, I've done the right things, I've, I've professed faith in the Lord Jesus, I believe all that is true about him, but there are times I, I waver in in being assured of my status with Almighty God. I really, really want to know with certainty that I am an adopted son or daughter, that I have that relationship with God as, as father to son or daughter, but sometimes I, I just waver in a little, bit of, a little bit of doubt. And so it would be great to be sure that we are adopted into God's family, contingent on our faith in his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus. When there's an adoption proceeding today, it's a legal kind of a transaction. It's quite significant for those of you who have adopted or uh, you've been in on that legal um, forum and on that day, a legal document is signed and sealed by the court of law. And at the moment uh, at which the document is signed and sealed, uh, that child now becomes uh, you, part of you, your, your family. The, old, the oldest passed away. New things have, have really come. And, and you don't doubt it because you, you have a document right, right there. And it's something even the adopted child, as he or she grows to be older, could actually look at and just be reminded, oh, I'm adopted into this family. It says so right here. And here's the signature and, of the authorities and and here it is sealed. There's a raised governmental seal on it. It, it has a, assured that the transaction of adoption has indeed taken place. Wouldn't it be just marvelous if we as Christians could have something like that? Some kind of a sealed thing that assured us at our moments of greatest doubt that we are in fact new creatures in Christ. We're adopted into the family of God. Well, here's good news. There is, there is such a thing, and it's in the very next verse. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 16. I really had as an ambition um, to cover more than one verse tonight. But um, I just, I didn't get into it. It got into me, and I, I didn't actually get to the next verse. So it's just one verse again. Uh, to, that makes it easy to memorize. So look, Romans 8, 16. Listen, the spirit, the spirit, the uh, definite spirit, capital S, the spirit of God, 
His presence, Holy Spirit. Hebrew, we say Ruach. Which one? Ha Kodesh. Ruach, Spirit. Well, there's a lot of spirits. Which one? Ha, the Kodesh. The Holy One. The Spirit whose character it is to be holy. There's unholy spirits. Don't mess with them. This is the, the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the presence of God. Look, the Spirit himself. Does your Bible say itself? Oh, if it does, get a new Bible. No, 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 this is not impersonal, you know, like energy. It's not like, may the force be with you. You know, all that nonsense. I mean, this is not a, an abstract kind of, this is a person with personality, with the full attributes of divinity. It's the very spirit of Almighty God. The spirit himself testifies with there's like a partnership here with our, something pertaining to us, our, our human spirit. The spirit of God joins with our human spirit, testifying, persuading that we, we who've accepted the Lord Jesus, are, not have been, not used to be, not one day will be, present tense, are, Children, I love that, not slaves, not employees. No, 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 are children of possession here, of children possessed, owned by, belonging to none other than God. I got to tell you something. There's such like a big deal. We need some measure of certainty, the likes of which you see in an adoption proceeding, a document signed and sealed and delivered. Well, we have that. God said, I know I'll place myself in the form of my spirit in you. And one of his ministrations on your behalf is to persuade you in conjunction with you yourself really have come deep down to know to be true, to join with you, my spirit and yours, in persuading you that you are, in fact, no matter what else is going on, you are, in fact, irreversibly, unconditionally, undeservedly, for sure, but nonetheless, you are, my spirit says so, your spirit knows so, you are a child of God. The spirit of God is the seal, is the pledge, is the down payment of our adoption. God knows we'd be troubled by all this and sometimes doubt and waver. And so he gave us help to testify, his own spirit to testify, to persuade us, to witness to the fact, to exert himself so as to put this thought, this convicting thought in our mind, we're not the same we used to be. We are in fact children of God. In Hebrew tradition, uh, we have been taught through the centuries, this is a biblical thing, that the testimony of two witnesses confirms something to be true. You know about this? You see it in the Old Testament, carries on in the New. The testimony of two uh, authenticates, verifies, solidifies a truth. And here you have those two witnesses. You have the Spirit of God and your own converted Human spirit, both joining together in a partnership, the design of which is to persuade even you, a doubter, a waverer, that you are in fact a child of God.
Now, here's the deal. Some people, I know this, wrongly persuade themselves that they're okay with God. I know this. In fact, uh, whenever there's a Gallup poll or something in the United States, you come up with like 75% say they are Christians. Come on, folks. We could not be in the mess we're in if that was true. It's just not true. So a real, real problem is those who toy with the truth claims of the Lord Jesus and attach themselves to them superficially or religiously. Sure, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? For many people, it means I'm not a Muslim or I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Buddhist. I must be, by process of elimination, I must be a Christian. But no, that doesn't... Do you know what distinguishes one as being a Christian? It, it's not going to church. It's not moral and ethical behavior. It's not giving. It's, not a, it's to be a repository, a temple of God's spirit. That's what separates one who is saved from one who is not. That God's spirit, upon our invitation, takes up his abode in our life. Romans 8 is all about that. The Holy Spirit in us and what he does. So I know it's a problem to allow people to casually and frivolously to think they are in fact a child of God when they may not be. I understand we're all the creation of God. I know that. I know we're all creatures of God, but not all are children of God. I understand that God is the creator of all, but I also understand he's really not the spiritual father of all. So it would be a mistake to, to assure those of salvation who have no reason to be assured because there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life. Okay, that being said, here's another problem. It's not just those who wrongly think they are children of God. It's actual children of God who think they ain't. That's a big problem too. And there may be a number here. Uh, of folks who bring tremendous tension, stress, and anxiety upon themselves, for though they indeed have been converted and are the home, the dwelling place of God's Spirit, there's been evidence of it, still, still, they have an up-and-down kind of experience when it comes to being assured of their new status. And it's very hard to function that way when you have this kind of up-and-down sort of experience, when you don't know with certainty that you are indeed a a child of, of God. So this happens sometimes to true, authentically converted Christians. How could it happen? Look, come on, folks. Our heads can get so filled with uh, stuff, the stuff of life. It's a rough, life is rough. Good night, it's getting rougher. Our heads can be so uh, famished. You know this word? Yiddish word. It, I, don't, I don't know how to translate. So messed up, so clouded, so foggy with all the things of life that it could just make us unsettled and disar in disarray, even emotionally. And so even one who has no reason to doubt his or her salvation can from time to time. And then there's another thing. That's like a spiritual challenge to the assurance of our salvation. But there are spiritual challenges. You know, the same book that tells us about Savior tells us about Satan. Listen to me. If he has lost someone's soul for eternity, that vexes him. But then the next best thing he could do is so interfere 
with their peace that they don't enjoy being saved. That's what he does. So Satan can, he's the father of lies, you know that? He authors lies. He can successfully at times implant in our minds, though we have accepted and latched onto by faith the totality of Christ's redemptive work by which we are saved, still the father of lies at our weaker moments can persuade us, in fact, that we are, are not saved. But Romans 8.16 says, in spite of all this, the witness of God's Spirit is still there. The Holy Spirit convinced you and I that we are sinners, and the same Holy Spirit indwells us now so as to convince us that we are now saved sons and daughters of God. So I want to tell you something. There is a difference, it seems to me, between being sure of one's salvation and being secure in one's salvation. I think it's possible to be securely saved, but not sure of it. You see, to be securely saved is a factual matter. God says, I sent my only begotten sons to suffer and die for your sins as your substitute. Do you accept or reject? You say, I accept his finished work on the cross on my behalf. You say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Make my life your home. Change me from the inside out. Forgive my sin. That's, that's what we do. And on that basis, as a matter of fact, we are, from that point on, secure in our salvation. But to be secure in it doesn't mean we are sure of it. Don't be ashamed if you're not sure of it. You know what we have? A battle between facts and feelings. The fact. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Confessed his death, burial, and resurrection. And you shall be saved. For there is salvation in no other name that has been given amongst men by which we must be saved. Salvation is a fact when one accepts the means of salvation. But feelings fluctuate, come and go. Could I tell you? Better to rest in the facts than in fluctuating feelings. Feel what you want. But as a matter of theological, spiritual fact, if a person is saved by the blood of the Lamb, that person is forevermore saved by the blood of the Lamb. Over the years, I've had the privilege of sitting across a table, a desk, uh, from many, many people oftentimes struggling with this very issue. Uh, they'll say, I, 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 I want to speak to you because I, I doubt my salvation. The first thing I do with folks who do is I thank them for coming and being honest and authentic about a sort of a touchy issue, nothing to be ashamed about. And so uh, the first thing I do is not quickly try to give them assurance of salvation. I try to quickly find out if they deserve it. I try to find out if they're truly redeemed. I look for marks of redemption. I look for evidence of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. It's really not quite that complicated. Let's say we have then settled the matter. We know for certain that that person who I'm sitting across from is indeed redeemed by God's means, God's method, the death of the Messiah, 
death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus. So let's, once that's a settled matter, then I begin to share with the person some passages of Scripture. Because remember, uh, the assurance of salvation should be based on facts, not feelings. And so I share passages of Scripture I bet you many of you are familiar with. And I've never yet met one person in that category of um, uncertainty who isn't familiar with the verses of Scripture on the subject that I share. Some could even quote them to me. So I fast determine, ah, theirs is really not a theological problem. They have misdiagnosed the situation. Theirs is an emotional problem. Now, this is just my experience, so maybe yours is different, but I'm just sharing you my experience. I have never sat with someone struggling with the issue of assurance of salvation. Never sat with, never sat with someone struggling with this issue whose, issue whose real problem is emotional rather than theological. What do I mean? Listen to me. It's really, really hard to embrace this notion that almighty transcendent deity who is so holy, he's like a consuming fire. You cannot approach him. He's so big that he speaks into existence all there is just by saying so. He doesn't perspire or labor. He speaks reality into existence. He, he did not come into being. He has no beginning nor any end. It is so hard to embrace the notion that you can know him as Abba Father, as Daddy, as Papa, as Dear Father. It is so overwhelmingly difficult to embrace that notion that it's very easy, though you are in his embrace, to doubt the whole thing. And I find in every case where someone is struggling in that area, it's because they have not been effectively embraced by their earthly father. I'm just telling you what my experience has been. What can I tell you? I'm just telling you. I'm not making this up. I've never met someone for whom this is a th really theological matter. It's emotional. And I could almost describe to that person what their father was like. I'll bet your father was distant. I bet he was cold. I bet he was intensely, painfully formal. I bet he rarely hugged you. I'll bet if you got a report card with four A's and one B, all he saw was the B. I'll bet you his love was quite contingent on your performance, athletically or academically. I'll bet you might even have had a father who at some point abandoned you entirely. And I'll bet you are cloning God, the Father, into the image of your earthly father. And I'll bet the notion of being unconditionally embraced by this father is so difficult for you to internalize because you don't have anything to hang it on because of your unhappy experience with earthly father. Look, that's just been what I've seen. If I'm wrong, I feel certain I'll hear about it. But I'm just telling you that I've just never met with someone for whom this is a pure theological issue. You know, let's study this in the Greek. Let's look at the verb that, that's not it. It's usually, I accepted the Lord Jesus. I've acknowledged my sin. I know he's my savior. I believe my eternity is in heaven. But I waver in it. I doubt it. I can't enter into it. I can't bask in it. I can't enjoy it. Prove something to me from the Bible. No. It's an emotional, unresolved emotional issue with every person I've ever met who struggles in this particular. But there are other reasons why people struggle with the issue of being assured of salvation. Here's one. I run into this a lot here too. Uh, it may be one of you. You don't know the specific day and date on which you accepted the Lord Jesus. 
I've had people come to me and say, I'm really troubled. I hear people say, you know, on such and such month and day and year, I became a Christian. We know that we just finished vacation Bible school. We know and we'll have baptism uh, as we did tonight. We'll have more on Sunday night. And uh, we might even see on such and such date, this particular candidate for baptism accepted the Lord Jesus. You know, it'll be a day, a month, a day. And a year. You sit there and you start shrinking. You go, I don't know, a day, a day. I don't know. If you asked me, what was the day, the day? Listen, if you asked me, I'm telling you, September 5th. 1973. I know. Where were you? I was in Omaha. You were in Omaha, Nebraska? What were you doing? I was in the Air Force. I was in the military barracks at Offutt Air Force Base. I was at the Strategic Air Command. I was in a room alone. September 5th, 1973. I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I remember it like it was yesterday. So when someone announces this is the date of my decision to accept Christ, it doesn't bother me. But to some extent, it bothers my wife. Why? She doesn't know a specific month and day and year upon which she accepted the Lord Jesus. She does not know that. She doesn't have to. And if you're in that category, neither do you. I ask you this question. But do you now know that you belong to Jesus and that he is yours. That's the issue. Don't worry about it. If you can't pinpoint a specific date, it's wonderful if you can, but that's not the essence of salvation. The essence of salvation is how are you living now? Do you see evidence of the spirit of God in your life? Has he given you a new fresh interest in hanging out with other believers, in reading his Bible, in sharing your faith, in giving to causes you never could have imagined giving? Are you convicted of sin in a way you never had? These are evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what if you can't precisely nail down the date? Don't let someone stir you up and call into question your salvation. Say to that person, hey, bozo. Who do you think you are? I know whose I am. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Get out of my way. That's how you should do it. So some people doubt their salvation because they don't know a specific date and time. Some people doubt their salvation, who should not, because they are Christians, because of ongoing struggles with a particular sin area. Maybe this is you. Don't raise your hand. Some people really struggle with an ongoing sin area, and therefore they say, obviously I'm not saved. I thought I was, but I must not be, because saved people don't have ongoing struggles with sin. That's the thinking. You know what I'm saying? So I want to let you in on a pastor's conversation with someone in this situation. I, I found this in, in a book, and I extracted it. It's not mine. It's a conversation between a pastor and someone struggling with this issue of, of assurance of salvation. The pastor said, why do you think you might not be saved? And the person said, well, because I have a particular sin in my life that I, I, I just can't beat. I mean, I just keep failing. The pastor said, so, so, so you know you're supposed to be doing better, right? The person said, yes, I'm supposed to be doing better, but I'm not. And, and that's why I doubt that I'm saved. And then the pastor said to that person, well, let me offer to you an illustration. Let's say the two of us are in a boat on, uh, on an ocean. We're sailing 
about. And suddenly we see two men in the water. They're in deep trouble. And we throw a life preserver to them, but it lands a few feet short of both of them. But we yell and we yell, grab it, grab it, grab the life preserver. One of the men reaches out for it, but falls short of attaching himself to it. He reaches out again and again, but now he's getting exhausted and fatigued and tired, and his arms are like uh, noodles, and they fall short of the life preserver. He keeps trying again and again. But the other man is simply floating face down in the water. He isn't struggling at all. Then the pastor said to this struggling person, which of the two men in the water is alive? And the person said, obviously the one reaching out for the life preserver. And the pastor said, that's it. You got it. He is struggling for life. Dead people don't struggle for life anymore. Spiritually dead people, unsaved people, are not engaged in a struggle against sin. The fact, the pastor said, the fact that you are struggling against your sin is the very evidence that you're looking for, and that is that you're very much alive in Christ. Isn't that good? It's not that we don't sin anymore. I'm not encouraging it. It's not that we don't struggle yet, but that's the idea. There was no struggle before. We surrendered to it. We yielded to it. It had mastery over us. Now, now, we resist it. We pray against it. We run from it. And sometimes when we commit it, we're grieved about it. We feel terrible about it. We don't enjoy it freely the way we once did. The very struggle, flesh versus spirit, is evidence of the presence of God's spirit. There was never a flesh versus spirit struggle. It was flesh calling the shots. Now God added an ingredient in our lives to neutralize the flesh, to pose resistance to it, his very spirit. Now I know sometimes we give in to the flesh. I got it. Other times we are uh, influenced more by the Holy Spirit. There's a battle going on. There was no battle before. It was a white flag. I surrender to sin. Let it dominate. But now we're no longer dominated by it. And here's another thing. Uh, I believe that I have a sin nature. Um, I, I, I believe that that has erected a barrier between me and God because I believe he doesn't have a sin nature. He's holy. And I believe that sin separates us from holy God. I believe that no matter what I do, I can't resolve that rather fundamental problem because no matter how religious, moral, and ethical I seek to be, I cannot do enough uh, to satisfy the standards of God. See, I believe that. I also believe that God graciously, inexplicably took the initiative in resolving my problem by paying the penalty for my sin in an amazing fashion, which I believe to be true. He became enfleshed. He became a human, though still divine, so as to be a substitute for me. And I believe not only that, when he was finished being crucified, this is quite amazing, but I believe it, he did something which defies reason. He rose up from death. I believe he is alive, evidence being empty tomb and many other things. And I believe that he therefore not only died for my sin, but lives so that I can be in a sustained relationship 
with his father. I believe, in fact, that this one who died and rose from the dead because he's alive is coming back. I mean, if he's still dead, there's no hopeful expectation of his return. But thank God he is alive. He's coming back. I believe that when he comes the second time, it'll be entirely different than the first time. The first time he came as lamb so as to suffer and die. The second time he'll come as lion. The first time he came as lamb to, to, to die for sin, the second time he'll come as lion to judge sinners. I believe if you're right about his first coming, you don't have a thing to worry about with regard to his second coming. I believe when he comes, I'm going to be with him, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth for a period of time. Oh, now I want to ask you a question. How in the world did I came to believe those things? Could I tell you those things are not a function of common sense, brilliance, and all the rest? In fact, it defy reason. How in the world was I made privy to those truths? How have I been able to apprehend those things as being true? When in fact, the Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man, that's another way of saying an unsaved man. An unsaved person does not, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? They're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The very fact that I've been able to believe in the truths I just shared with you is evidence to me of God's spirit in my life. Because you cannot come to believe those truths. You cannot discern and apprehend those truths except by God's spirit. Don't you see? If you believe those truths... You just have evidence of the fact that God's spirit has made you believe in those truths, has removed the veil and blinders from your eyes. He's taken up his abode in your life and deepened your conviction to adhere to those truths. You didn't do that through rational process of intellectual analysis. Come on, don't give yourself so much credit. You could never imagine a God who would become enfleshed, allow himself to be murdered by other men, and then Beat up on death, the last enemy, rising up from it, revealing himself to be alive. You could never imagine. Those things are not naturally discerned. They are spiritually discerned. If you believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, you have evidence forever that God's spirit has influenced you, taken over you, and that's all the evidence you need to be now and forevermore assured of your salvation and of your status as a, as a child of God. But can a true believer be spiritually alive and yet still having various struggles with life and with sin? Yes! Are you kidding me? In fact, if you're not struggling against sin, you may not be saved at all. Struggling against sin is a very evidence, the very sign of new life produced in you by God's Spirit. But what if you don't feel saved? Folks, that's the enemy's doing. Let me tell you that. You know what one of Satan's ploys is? Is to get us, even as Christians, to simply take our eyes off of Christ and onto us. That's what he does. And when, you, when you're too focused on you, or I'm too focused on me, man... It's very depressing. I don't know if you knew this. It's very discouraging to be self-absorbed. We are not a pretty picture. 
And then we become overwhelmingly persuaded we must not be saved at all. There's a whole bunch of ugly stuff going on. This is what Satan does. He turns our eyes from Savior to self. But the Spirit of God in us is, is in us to do the very opposite thing. He wants us to turn our eyes to Savior. You know that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? I told my wife when I die, I would like that to be sung. John Mark, if you're around, maybe you could accommodate I want it sung, you know, in my homegoing service. You know, sing this with me. Sing, sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. What happens? And the saints of earth will grow strange. How? In the light. Who's his glory? You see? His glory and grace. Don't you see? The enemy wants to turn our gaze inward. The Spirit of God wants to turn our gaze upward to the risen Savior who said, it is finished, paid in full. Folks, the primary basis for the assurance of our salvation cannot be anything but the factual nature of the words of the one who promised salvation to us. Can I offer to you some of his words with which you're familiar? John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, he said it two times. You know what he's saying? Listen up, folks. He's saying, this is true to the max. That's what he's saying. He's not wasting words. Truly, truly, I, Jesus himself, say to you, he who hears, my word. That's good. Not good enough. He who hears more and believes. That means to put confidence in, to trust in. He who hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. Hear about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Believe. What's the result? Eternal life. But there's more. He does not come into judgment. Everyone here fears the re being rejected by God. He does not come into judgment. What's the alternative? But has passed, crossed over. He has passed out of death, spiritual and physical, into life. The only sure basis for the assurance of our salvation are the, ones, are the words of the one who came to save us. I just read to you his words. Here, in this text, the last phrase has passed out of death into life. In the Greek, it's the perfect tense. I don't mean perfect in the sense of perfect versus flawed. It's a special tense in Greek. Whenever I study the New Testament, if I run across the perfect tense, tense, I get real excited. Now, and you'll see why. Because the perfect tense means something happened in the past. But though it happened in the past, it has results that persist into the future. That's the we don't have anything like it in English. It's a Greek. That's why God gave us the New Testament in Greek. You can't do this in English. You don't do it in Greek. Something happened in the past. What happened in the past? You heard about Jesus and what he did. And you believe. That happened in the past. For me, September 5th, 1973, for you, some of you know, some of you don't know, but it was past. Something happened in the past, but it has residual effects 
on into the future. What happened in the past has results that continue into the present and in the future. How do I know that? Because it's stated in the perfect tense. Has passed out of death. That happened when you accepted Christ and into life. But it's in the perfect tense. You're always on the other side. You're always now in the domain. No longer of darkness, but of the kingdom of the beloved son. You are now born anew. You made a decision in the past, but it persists in the present and will continue into the future. Just the use of the perfect tense is enough basis for being assured of salvation. Yeah, but you say, wait a second. That sounds good, but what if I lose my hold on Christ? I'm weak. My heart grows cold at times. I uh, give in to worldly temptation. What if I, I just I lose my grip on him? I, have, I got a passage for you. Listen, John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. My sheep, Jesus is speaking, hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never, we don't need the Greek for never. Never is never, right? I will never, they will never perish. And no one, first you got to never, now you got to no one. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Think about this. If you look at the verse. No one, Jesus says, will snatch them out of my hand. Could you hold your hand out just like this for a second? Um, imagine yourself in the palm. Let's imagine it's Jesus' hand. You are in the palm of his hand. He said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So curl up your fingers like this. You are in the embrace of the Lord Jesus. But, but, but then it says, it gets better. It, it, it says, and no one will be able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So now take your other hand and wrap it around this hand. Oh, you're on the inside. It has nothing to do with you holding on. It has to do with the fact that you're being held by the Son, by the Father. You're not getting snatched away. You're not greater than the one who saved you and redeemed you and purchased you with a price. I got to tell you something. You can doubt your salvation all you want, but factually there's no basis for it. So I want to ask you this. Do you really believe that God wants you to know for sure that you have eternal life? The answer is yes. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 11 to 13. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I've written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have Eternal life. Why does the Father want us to be so certain of our salvation? Let me illustrate. Years ago, my wife and I went with the senior adults of this church to uh, Alaska. Uh, wonderful bro brother Buddy Fortenberry sponsored the trip. We went along because we're in that category now, as you can see. 
And so we went with a great group of folks, and it was a cruise in Alaska, just absolutely beautiful. If you haven't been there, leave now. Go there. It's really cool. So, uh, but we didn't get there directly. We had to fly from here to, uh, I don't know where. Where did we go, Seattle? Yeah, feel free to yell out any time. Seriously, it's a free country. So we went to Seattle, but here's the deal. Most of the people in our group had confirmed tickets. My wife and I did not. We went on a kind of standby status, sort of standby status. There was a noticeable difference between those who had confirmed seats <laughs> and my wife and I. Those who had confirmed seats were sitting around, reading magazines, getting a hot dog, talking, sleeping. My wife and I, on the, on the other hand, we had, are you ready for another Yiddish word? Spilkas. Spilkas, you know what I mean? It's kind of, we had spilkas. We're up and down every, these are good words, aren't they? Spilkas. Some of them you can't use. This one is okay. Well, we're just up and down. Nervously, I'm up and down. I'm going to the ticket desk and saying, hey, so what's the status? You know, uh, like, is the, are there seats? Going to be seats on the flight? Well, sir, you'll just have to take your seat. As I told you just 30 seconds ago, we don't know yet. To, just sit down and relax. I can't relax. I don't have a confirmed seat. Are we going to make this flight? If we don't make, let me ask you a question. If we don't make this flight, like it's full, what's the next flight? And is there room for us on that? Sir, you're just going to have. So I just thought of something. The difference between the relaxed folks and the non-relaxed folks was this. The relaxed folks had absolute confident assurance that they're going to make it to their destination. My wife and I had this big looming question mark about that in our mind. We didn't know if we're going to make it ever or on a timely way. Folks, God has given us not only his word, but also, as it says in this text, Romans 8, 16, his spirit to produce in us confident assurance that we are going to arrive at our intended and final destination. Without assurance, we got spilkas. We're jumping up and down. We're wondering. We're putting ourselves under tremendous anxiety and tension and all the rest. I'm telling you, Jesus did all that was necessary to save you and me. His work of salvation on our behalf is a work that has been completed. He said, it is finished. God made a promise of eternal life. And for those who've accepted his promise, it is eternal life. That is their guarantee, in which they ought to be assured of. Your assurance of salvation and mine has nothing to do with how we feel, nor with how we have failed. It has to do with the factual, reliable promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He or she who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life. Blessed assurance for those who have the Son. If you do not, why not? Why not come to be connected with the crucified, buried, resurrected Lord Jesus who yearns to be your Savior? Why not get connected with him tonight? In the next few moments, 
we'll dismiss and invite you not to go so quickly, but to join with wonderful folks in the room behind us. You can't see it from here, but you could access it through either door through which you exit. Just turn inward. You'll be in what we call the Connection Center. There's someone will pray for you about the most significant matter that's facing you, eternal life. Very, very important. For those of us who've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, it's upon his merits, his finished work, that we are assured of salvation and have blessed assurance. Do you know that song? Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. Purchase of God. Born of his spirit. Washed in his blood. Please stand with me.